I'm Angela Kennecke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. Today I'm joined by Dr. Matt Stanley, who is a psychiatrist and medical director of the new Avera Addiction Care Center opening at the end of the year here in our community of Sioux Falls. And Dr. Stanley has worked with patients for a couple of decades, many dealing with addiction over the years. Can we talk a little bit, Dr. Stanley? I understand that about half of the population doesn't believe addiction is a disease. Can you explain to people why and how addiction is a disease? Yeah, I think Maybe the easiest thing for people to kind of accept is when we compare it to other chronic diseases. So addiction, much like diabetes, which is a disease we often use as a comparator, addiction is genetically driven. Physiologic changes occur at the receptor level. We have a bunch of neurochemicals in the brain that are affected. It it really is the physiology of the body that begins to dictate the addiction. I think where people get really hung up is they feel like this is a disease of choice. A moral failing. A moral failing. And that, and we've heard that repeatedly. And we get, I think because we often, like many illnesses, we as people who care about the people with addictions get really frustrated, get really angry. And I think sometimes that anger is expressed by saying, you know, you need to control this. This is a moral problem. This is a weakness of character. But on the other hand, if you look again at that di- that diagnosis of diabetes, many of the, much of that is developed through lifestyle, exercise, but it's very genetic, it's very powerful, and there are changes you have to commit to to be able to manage that. It's not different in most aspects when you start to compare them between addictions and diseases like diabetes that we call chronic medical illnesses. I think some of the problem that some people have is that with diabetes, the choice may be eating the wrong food, where with addiction, the choice may be using an illegal drug. So this is something people are like, well, why did you ever use that in the first place? Or once you used it, why did you keep using it? Right. And and again, I think it's understanding that with our genetics and, and the power of neurochemicals, one exposure can really just flip a switch that's almost, I won't say impossible because many, many people have overcome tremendously difficult addictions. I don't know how to describe when addicts tell you when the light goes on, the first time they have this, how they feel. It's just like everything in the world is right. All of a sudden, I know it's been missing. It's a powerful, powerful neurochemical reaction. From that perspective, and I heard a geneticist say this once, someone who's also a psychiatrist and very involved in genetics and addiction and psychiatric care, he said, next time you don't curse them to God, say there, but for the grace of God goes I. They got exposed. Their lifestyle put them in a situation. They ended up using a drug and boom, they're addicted. I won't, I won't say that it's always boom. It's not always a one time. it's pretty quick, right? Oh, for Generally? many people, for many people. For instance, we're, we're in the midst of an opioid addiction. I remember one of the first people that I treated with opioid addiction, and this 
actually goes back well before this was kind of a recognized problem. I was working with the South Dakota Health Professionals Assistance Program, which works with professionals that have an addiction issue and but have reported it and are working with within with the state authorities and with this recovery program to get better. This particular individual was a pharmacist. And the point of the story, though, is the first time that he ever took the drug. He said, all of a sudden, I had energy. My mood was great. Uh, it was everything I ever wanted to be seemed within my grasp, just mentally, physically. And I've had opioids before as part of Percocet or something else. I can't even remember. After I don't have a surgery lot of, or something. Yeah, Me I don't too. have a lot of medical issues. But I actually disliked the feeling. So to me, me too. The, that contrast was just amazing, but eye-opening. It's like, yes, that is the difference between you. Energy? No way. I felt horrible. I felt like, oh, I'm foggy. This is creepy. Right. I don't know. I don't want another one of those. I think in my case, I had hydrocodone after uh, childbirth, and I didn't want it again. I mm. never, it never did anything for me except maybe knock me out. One thing I thought was really interesting when you talk about that being like the best feeling they've ever had or everything's okay with the world, I was on a panel with Dr. Drew and Jack Osborne and Brandon Novak. And Jack Osborne and Brandon Novak are opioid addicts. Dr. Drew asked them, the first time or the second time you got high, what was it like? And they both said, I couldn't wait to do it again. Like that's, I just, Mm -hmm. it was just it for me. And I couldn't wait to get back to that. And I think people who don't have that gene or whatever, is it something that gets turned on? Do you think a gene? I do. I, I mean, and to me, what we just described, that contrast between you and my experience with an opioid and this individual who became addicted, I think is a good illustration of just how different we are and how much. So when we say, oh, I've done that and I had no desire to be addicted, you know, well, lucky for you. That's what I mean. Right. There, but for the grace of God goes, I, I did not have that powerful reaction. It did not. That exposure didn't change my desire to have another one. But I can't say that for everyone. And I think one of the things that we don't understand about the opioid epidemic, and maybe heroin, we used to hear this about crack cocaine. We think of addictions as like nicotine and alcohol. Yeah, that's rarely that boom moment. Oh, I felt great when I did that. You almost have to work at it. (laughs) Alcohol is something I think that over time people get addicted to more likely. It takes a little bit longer, correct? I Well, I agree. That's been my experience. Now, clearly there are people that are genetically predisposed, more predisposed to have an addiction. You know, most people will get or can get intoxicated on alcohol, but it's very rarely it's a one-time thing. I think people that quickly get hooked on alcohol or people that are usually masking like their social anxiety or other issues. So when they feel that, it's a little bit like what the opioid addict might feel in that, gosh, for the first time I could talk to people. For the first time I could be out in public. So it's different, but it's it still serves a purpose for them that they can immediately recognize. But I don't think when we talk about most people, their reference point for addictions are alcohol and tobacco. And those aren't really rapidly addicting substances as much as some of these others we're talking Compared about. Compared to heroin, the cocaine, and, yeah. meth, those kinds of things. Right. Is there always an underlying mental condition for people who become addicted to these powerful drugs? That's, a, that's an or excellent question. Does the question. drug cause anxiety? And yeah, that's a very good question. So, you know, first of all, we have to realize that 
in America, like 20% of us meet the DSM-5 diagnosis for a mental health disorder in any given year. So we're talking about a pretty large population. I was going to say, is that number growing? We hear about anxiety problems, especially among kids these days. I think it probably is growing, which I don't know. That's probably another discussion. But within those that have an addiction, we usually say at least 60%, possibly more, have a co-occurring mental health issue. But you, you brought up one of the pivotal questions, and that is, is it a chicken or egg? You know, how much does the the addiction turn on a behavioral health issue? How much does a behavioral health issue drive you to an addiction? I don't know that there's a single accurate answer. I think it's probably very case-specific. But what we do know, there is a very high overlap. You know, one thing I'd like to talk about as a parent and as a parent who lost a child in this opioid epidemic is the use and the experimentation of substances at a young age. Because I think For many parents, they kind of think, oh, that's normal behavior. My kid is going to drink alcohol. My kid is going to experiment and go to parties. My kid is going to smoke some marijuana. That's, I think, what parents think to themselves. You know, that's what I did. That's what I expect my child to do. But I found, especially with my daughter, the marijuana was what she was attracted to, and it seemed just to grow and grow and grow. And I'm wondering about that substance in the developing brain and the way our society kind of looks at, is this really, should this really be a rite of passage? I think we're tremendously misinformed about the impact of marijuana on the developing brain. And I think that's been lacking from the conversations about legalization of marijuana. I think, you know, it's, it it may be a relatively hard, and I say relatively, when I say harmless drug to a developed mature brain. But remember, we're talking about brain maturity at 21 or 22, 18 is an arbitrary age of maturation, right, or of majority. So doesn't mean your brain's developed at 18. Exactly. That's not based on the physiology of the body. That's, a, that's an arbitrary age we pick to say, here's where you're an adult and here's where you're a child. There's very clear studies about the impact of marijuana on the developing brain, including things like IQ, including things like we talk about how people on marijuana are more relaxed, but the reality is there's a a passivity that goes with that. That There are studies that that identify that passivity impacts things like your ability to be employed, to achieve a, a higher degree. It actually, if you look at a big enough number, a large enough N, and if it's used when you're younger, you take a less challenging road. You don't have... You don't the... live up to your potential? Exactly. I think that's the best way to put it. The other thing that's out there, too, is does it, it appears to bring on more quickly the onset of schizophrenia and may actually raise the risk of having schizophrenia. So those are conversations we rarely talk about. But that's medical evidence. That's peer-reviewed studies that would identify this. So this isn't anecdotally saying, no... Marijuana is safe. I use it. It makes me feel better. These are studies that look at numerous people, a large N, and come up with, there are changes that are occurring here. And you can't tell me that if we make marijuana more and more available, that it's not going to get into younger and younger people. And your point about early use, if you're exposed to a drug before the age of 14, your risk of having an addiction to that drug is tremendously, tremendous elevated. I think in alcohol, it's as high as 70% if you're exposed before the age of 14. It's incredibly high. Well, that is frightening. I think for most parents don't even know that. I think they're not even aware of the dangers. And we do live in a culture where it seems like marijuana is becoming more and more culturally accepted. And it's we're probably going to a place where it will be legal at some point in all states. But just as with alcohol being legal everywhere, it gets into the hands of kids Absolutely. much easier. The other question I had for you 
I've had a couple of calls from frantic parents of Emily's friends who have also overdosed and lived. It was so hard for those parents to get those kids into treatment. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard to get people into treatment when they're actively using and even after they've overdosed, you think that they would go, hey, I've got a problem. I need help. Yeah. The individual's resistance to going to treatment. Yeah. It, it is, I think, hard to understand. One of the things about addictions that I've come to appreciate working with many people is sometimes it's it's not so much there's a resistance to the concept that I'm an addict, but there's either a belief that I, I can do it on my own. I don't want to go away. I don't need to do that. I will just quit. And they believe it. I don't think that they're pulling your leg. They just underestimate the power of the drive, the biological drive that's going to lead them back to the drug. So I think there's a lot of good intentions. Nobody at that age with their friends and their social support, they don't want to be pulled away. But they also don't realize those are the same things that will more than likely draw them back, those friends and the social support they have. And it's so dangerous today with the amount of fentanyl that's well, out that's... there and continues to come into this country. Absolutely. So that's the difference with opioids. You Like we think of alcohol, and I will tell you, even a, someone with successful recovery, it, it includes relapses, sometimes several, sometimes few. But we say, you know, relapse is expected but not required. It usually will occur. The problem is exactly what you said, Angela. With opioids, sometimes it's one slip and it's fatal. I think they're playing on the street, they're playing Russian roulette every time they buy. Because you, you don't know. You don't know what you're getting. And those are deadly, deadly drugs out there. So that brings me to the question of why it's so difficult to treat addiction in the first place. It seems like no two addiction is the same. Trying to figure out how to treat one, what will work for one person, won't always work for another person. And then keeping them from relapsing. In a world that we live in where their next use can be deadly. Yeah, a couple of comments on that. I think that there is no single path recovery, but I think a lot of the components of recovery are similar regardless of the drug. We do, again, this opioid epidemic has pointed out some of the unique aspects of opioids in general. And I think we have to take a different approach with opioids. And I think this is why we have had such a struggle to get our arms around this problem nationally. If you look at the data on using Suboxone or Methadone versus abstinence, and, and abstinence is the method of choice across the broader country, right? Our concept of recovery is you never touch it again. When you look at the data, though, on people with opioid addiction, and you look at the mortality rate on those that choose or are directed toward abstinence, it's frightening. So people are dying at a much higher rate when they're just trying to abstain, trying to use their willpower or their recovery tools, so to speak. They're dying at a much higher rate is what you're saying. Yes. I would say that data would say we need to use more Suboxone or Methadone. We don't We don't think of that as alcohol. You use a drug to treat an Use addiction, right? Use a drug to right? treat a drug, and a lot of people are opposed to that. Very, yeah. I think that's very confusing to people and seems like you're just switching one addiction to another. That is, I think, where we have to go with this opioid addiction. We have to change our concept of what recovery is. And abstinence may not actually be, I mean, I, you have to abstain from street drugs. You have to abstain, I think, from the heroin, obviously, and, and the opioids. But Suboxone or Methadone? maybe the best way for you to remain healthy. What about Vivitrol and the shots? They're, mm -hmm. they're so expensive right now. That's a barrier, $1,000 a shot, which, which will last for 30 days. And then I know these drugs are so monitored, so that makes it easier yeah. for people. Yeah, so one reasonably recent study that I had reviewed indicated that induction, so those first few weeks 
Induction is harder with Vivitrol to get a patient started on it successfully. But once you do, the outcomes were similar between the Suboxone and the Vivitrol. I do think there's a place for that. And Vivitrol has a place in alcohol addictions as well. It you know, blocks that opioid receptor so you don't get the same kind of high, you don't get the same kind of response from the drug. And that can have an impact with alcohol use as well. That is an interesting drug. As you said, it's expensive, but it's a once once a month deal. Less of a time commitment, certainly. I know you're on the treatment side and not on the paying for the addiction mm-hmm. treatment side. But as a physician, I know you see patients that come in that may have insurance that refuse to cover treatment or their insurance may be so limited where that same insurance may cover cancer treatment or diabetes treatment or things like that. Do you think that that, that there's such a barrier, I think, with cost? When I brought up the cost of that drug, I thought about that and people just trying to pay for that. And maybe their insurance companies won't pay for it or maybe their insurance companies won't pay for treatment. How do we deal? And I hear about that all the time from people the financial barriers to treatment, which is one of the reasons we're raising money for Emily's Hope. What do you think needs to be done from a physician standpoint in this country? Yeah, I I think like many problems, it looks relatively straightforward. I think there's some complexities there. I think one of the things that's difficult is, uh, and this isn't uh, to be an apologist for the insurance companies, insurance companies, for the most part, are familiar with dealing with health systems, Mayo, Avera, whoever it is, who over the years have developed very clear billing and diagnosis-related charges, uh, et cetera. I think one of the ways in which we've maybe gotten on the wrong course in addictions is you have a lot of private addiction centers out there. Anybody can hang up a shingle and call themselves a treatment center. Yep. And in talking with our own health plan, there have been some pretty serious burns along the way in terms of churning billing, very limited quality control, outcomes don't look good on a national basis. That isn't to say that there aren't a lot of very good private recovery centers out there. But I think there is, I I bring that point up because I think on the insurer's side, there is kind of a natural maybe hesitancy, even paranoia about what are we paying for if we send you to and who do we send you to. So I think there's, uh, on the one side, there's maybe a little concern about the quality they're paying for and what they're getting for their dollar. But all that aside, as I said, I'm not an apologist for the insurance companies. There is a lot of stigma built into this. There's a lot of non-acceptance of the fact that this is a medical illness. We're not looking at it with the medical model. Right. I think that maybe you're getting to the heart of what the whole problem may be, and that's just reflected. It's in society, and it's also reflected in the business models of insurance companies. And the insurance companies, because that's the social norm, they can kind of get away with it, right? Like, if the average consumer out there says, yeah, you shouldn't have to pay for that. That's his That's his moral weakness. There's not really a hue and cry to say, get your act together, insurance company, and start paying for this. So I think we're coming around, though, uh, as a country. I think kind of the um, social consciousness has been raised remarkably in terms of addictions, but I would say broader just in behavioral health. Do you think that we are going to make some advancements and some great strides in treating addiction? Because What I see happening a lot is people going into these 28-day programs and coming out and maybe they go into the program 12 times. Mm -hmm. I've heard of that. Or they wind back up in jail. And so it seems like the the treatments that we're trying aren't always effective for everybody. They may work some of the time, but not not as much as we'd like. So what's coming down the road? Well, I think a couple things. I think healthcare in general is changing more to outcomes-based. And I think that health systems, as I just said, we kind of years ago went on dichotomous systems. Addictions were done by private companies. Healthcare systems focused on chronic illnesses and acute. They're very separate systems. 
But as you can see with the Vera, we're saying, no, this belongs in the same, under the same tent. We are, this is a medical illness. This is impacting the outcomes of many, many of our community and our patients. And we want to have a direct line to treating that and treating it well. As healthcare systems wake up to the idea of treating the whole patient, and as payers move toward outcome-based, so it's not just that I had you for 28 days, it's that you ended up a year later functioning. You know, sobriety is kind of a difficult di- definition to agree upon, but le- but at a year, which has kind of been a pivotal point in recovery, we say you're in good recovery. Once we start basing payment and basing our expectations on the outcome instead of the event, then I think you'll see system improvement. And that's really where we're going. Because to your point, there's nothing magical about 28 days of being inpatient. I would agree with the critics that say that's a, it's an artificial environment. It's not the environment in which you're plagued with triggers and you don't have social pressures and all the sure, things. Sure, stress, that would, yeah. anxiety, you know, things going wrong in your yeah. life. And then it's generally why people turn to substances in the first place to right. feel better. But we kind of need to get you in there so that you can escape those things and focus on learning and cleaning out your body and preparing yourself to go back into that environment. It's still critical, though, that we are with you or, or that you have supports to survive that environment when you return. And not just the first few days or weeks. We really feel like, again, up that, that entire first year, you're going to need whatever supports we can develop for you. How long does it take the brain to heal? Yeah, and it probably depends a little bit on which drug you're talking about. But in general, again, this is one of those things I think we don't consider, but a year. Alcohol, which you think, okay, I'm sober, I got over this. Yeah, you're looking at least a year. because, And we have PET scans that will measure the changes in the brain, both when you start using and then when you stop. And it is typically well over a year or over a year. So you kind of see those PET scans begin to light up again like they did prior to the beginning of drug use. You know, when I was trying to help my daughter and I was taking her to various physicians for one one example of this or one story that I have is that Emily was picking at her face. Mm. And I was really worried, was she using meth? So I asked her that and, of course, she denied it and she was not using meth. But she told me she was filled with anxiety and that's why she was picking at her face and you know, she'd gone to a counselor. Then I took her to a dermatologist where the dermatologist prescribed a face cream and an anti-anxiety medication, hmm. but never once screened her for addiction. Mm-hmm. Later, after she died, I learned that coming off a of heroin can cause someone to pick at their face, which I didn't know that. And I'm pretty well educated on this subject because I'm a reporter and I've done a lot of stories right. on it even before this happened with my daughter. Do you think we need better screenings by all physicians at every touch point when somebody goes in to see the doctor? You know, are they using, are they suffering from substance use disorder? Yeah, that's a great question. The easiest answer for me would be to say yes. I just had this discussion with Dr. Wildey, who does treatment for... He does medically assisted treatment? Yeah, he does the Suboxone treatment. And, you know, he's a teacher with the Center for Family Medicine, so he works with residents. So we were just talking about universal screening versus kind of case-based screening, you know, so we don't want to set up screenings that are biased because you're lower socioeconomic or whatever, but it's the argument of should everybody be screened or should we look for things like, well, this patient was picking at her face, we better screen. I, I think ultimately we need to move toward universal screening, but I also know from my primary care 
friends, partners. We're being asked to screen for so much already. How much of this can we keep adding? And I know personally, I've asked them to start screening for suicidality, major depression. It is, the list gets longer and longer, and that's just the behavioral health side. They have the other issues, medical issues they need to screen for. I agree with you. I think we need need filters because the other thing that happens is people kind of don't get to the right level of care at the right time. Yes, that's what happened with my daughter or she'd still be here today. And in order to do that, but we have to be aware of who needs help and the earlier they need help, the better resources we can bring to bear. Unfortunately, what usually happens is, you know, we wait till there's a catastrophic event and then they then they move to the highest level of care and then the highest level of care is always totally occupied and there's really no stratum of care that we've developed. So that's a long answer to what probably could have been a brief <laughs> response. Well, but I would say there there is a need for universal screening. I'm not sure how we do that well. I think there so is... So we maybe don't have the techniques in place right now we don't have a, a way or a system, right? And and maybe it isn't maybe it isn't the healthcare system. I mean, maybe there are other areas where screening occurs. Now, having said that, I mean, you still it's it's a comment you made earlier, and it's you know it's kind of that where are you at in that preparation to accept treatment? Because people, you know, all our screenings are essentially face evident. If you don't want to admit you're using, it's pretty easy to just say no. It's a, We're not going to like unmask something that you didn't realize you just revealed and, oh, gosh, we need to get you help. Right, because denial is a big part of it. Right. And honestly, we on the outside think everybody should want treatment, right? When you're in the midst of using, sometimes it's I'm very content with what I'm doing. Although, to be fair, in opioids... We've talked, I think, before about the concept of chasing the dragon. To never reaching that same high that you got the first time you used it. Yes, and the difference between, oh, I love this versus I got to use because I don't want to feel like I feel when I don't use. And feel worse than the flu, Right, 10 times worse than the flu. So I think that after a period of use, almost every opioid person with an addiction has some inkling, some desire, some awareness that I need to get off of this or I need help with this, but it's still hard to come forward. And then you have the shame. Right. Because that stops so many people. They're so ashamed of what they're doing and they think they can handle it themselves. And what is the best advice that you can give to a parent or somebody who loves someone who they know is suffering from substance use disorder? Well, I think don't give up. I think have the candid conversation. You know, this is a complete aside, and and actually I have to credit you with this, Angela, but we're now, we're going to send our chemical dependency counselors to intervention training because I think families families need professional support in this. And there are some interventionists out there. We just want to make it far more available. So I think there are, there's some developments that we as a system, we as a state, we as a society need to improve. But I think back to your question, if you can find a professional in addictions that you can talk to, and certainly Avera has them. It doesn't always have to be the person with the illness that starts getting the help. Many times they won't. And I think also today, rock bottom is death or brain damage. That's what I always say. I heard that from a friend and I say that's so true. So I have families contact me every week asking me, how do I get an involuntary commitment? What do I do? So it's great to hear that you're going to be training people on how to do interventions and that's going to be a resource for people. Because I know their frustration. I drug my daughter around to counselor after counselor. I invoked the law. I tried all kinds of things and nothing worked. Finally, we had gotten to the point where we were going to use the interventionist and we were too late. And hopefully people will do that sooner than what my family did. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I just want to 
let you leave us with a few thoughts that you're thinking about as this issue gets more and more attention and more and more people are dealing with substance use disorder. Just leave me with some final thoughts. I'd go back to some of the first comments we made today that we need to view addiction and behavioral health issues as medical issues. You know, if if people are hung up on the idea that that leaves the individual out of the accountability, it's not true at all. To successfully manage any illness, that individual has to follow a, a regimen. They have to become educated. They have to. They have to want to be. They healthy. have to want to be healthy, and I don't care if it's diabetes or if it's an addiction. What I'm saying isn't. Let's, let's take the accountability for these diseases away from these people and we'll own it. They still own it. We just need to be the support around them. We as a society need to say, yeah, this is, this is killing our best and our brightest. This is affecting 20 or more percent of our population. We need to accept it and we need to address it and we need to all get behind it. I guess kind of just a, uh, a cry for support and understanding and let's, let's take care of our own people. Very well said. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.